everybody, and welcome to another episode of Book Goodies, the author series podcast. I'm your host, Deborah Carney, and I'm joined by um, another host, Karen Garcia. Hi, Karen. How are you? Doing great. How about yourself? Good. Um, talking to a lot of authors today. We're having a great time. Um, today we have with us author MJ Rose. Hi. How are you doing? Hi, fine, thanks. Nice to have. Nice that you're having me. I appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Um, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners and let them know a little bit about you, and then we'll talk about your current book. Okay. Um, uh, I've been published. I have twelve books out. Um, I was the first author ever to self-publish a novel in 1998 that got picked up on the internet. It was the first ebook ever discovered online and bought by New York Publishing. It was nice. bought by the Doubleday Book Club and the Literary Guild. It was called Lip Service, and it was an erotic novel that I'd self-published and marketed myself for six months that had become the highest-ranked small press novel at Amazon. And I was on the Today Show and in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and NPR and Fox and Friends and all kinds of wonderful places because I apparently had discovered that you could use the Internet to get a book deal, which <laughs> these days sounds like something like, duh, but in 1998, nobody had ever done it before. So mm -hmm. I started that, and um, I got published by Pocket Books, bought the book, and since then, my books have all been published by traditional publishers, but I've self-published a book called Buzz Your Book, and I own a marketing company called AuthorBuzz.com. It's the only marketing company for authors and the first one. And um, I have gotten the rights back to some of my other books and self-published them myself. And um, I'm always uh, doing new and different things. And um, I started International Thriller Writer Organization with four, five other people in 2004. I was one of the founding board members. I started booktrib.com with Meryl Moss three years ago. It's a really popular book site for readers. And um, my current book is The Book of Lost Fragrances, which came out a couple of months ago and is about uh, something that's true, which is that Cleopatra was obsessed with perfume and had a perfume factory that they found about 20 years ago in what's now the Israeli desert. And back then, perfumers were also priests, and perfume was religious as well as cosmetic. And Cleopatra's perfumers, the people who made her perfumes, kept a book of her fragrances, the ones that she loved, and the formulas for those fragrances. Wow. And that book was written about by Pliny the Elder and Cicero and a lot of famous historians up until about 600 A.D. And then nobody ever saw the book again. It was lost. And oh so when I read about this book of lost fragrances, or lost book of fragrances as it is literally, I felt, oh my God, that's like such a perfect idea for a novel. And I've been writing some books that have to do with reincarnation since 2006, one of which, The Reincarnationist, was made into a TV show by Fox in 2010. And I saw this book of lost fragrances as a way to write about soulmates and fragrance and reincarnation and ancient Egypt and Paris and a French family of perfumers who may or may not have found this book all these years later. It all just kind of gelled and uh, the book came out. I love it. <laughs> I, I have to go read now. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> the really bad thing about doing all these wonderful podcasts with all you wonderful authors is we want to read all your books now. Well, that's good. That's what we're trying to do is make people read our books. Right. But um, now you mentioned you said you were a co-founder on a site called Book Something, and I didn't catch the end of oh, it. Oh, Book Trib, T-R-I-B. Okay. Like Book Tribune. Yeah, and that's a site that... Um, all things books all the time, author interviews, and a lot of, you know, cool things for readers to go check out. Nice. Okay, awesome. Uh, we'll have to make sure we put that in the in the show notes. And, um, all right, so you already told me all the great stuff that I was going to ask you half the questions about, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I love the, the way you came up with the topic, you know, with the idea, and... Um, one thing is that a lot of authors and, you know, a lot of authors listen to our, our podcasts in addition to some readers, um, a lot of authors, uh, are afraid to go with an idea like your idea. It sounds like it like all came to you like all together and then you just went out and wrote it. Is that <laughs> No, um, <laughs> not at all. I, I, you know, that did happen to me, though, two or three times in my life that happened. The first novel I wrote, or the first the novel that I got published with, Lip, Lip Service, which actually is coming out, my publisher is re-releasing in two weeks. That was the book that was a self-published book that got picked up. It's a very erotic novel. Before there were Shades of Grey, there was Lip Service. And so my publisher is reissuing it for the people that haven't found it. And that book, literally, I was getting into a taxi in New York, and I put my hand on the door. I'd written a book before that my agent didn't think was very good. I hadn't been published yet. I was kind of freaked out and thinking, oh, my God, I'll never write anything my agent can sell. And I put my hand on a taxi cab door to open it. And I, I swear, between the time that I opened the door and got into the taxi, I had an idea for I had the idea for a book about a woman who's a writer and gets hired by a sex therapist who uses phone sex instead of sex surrogates. And oh. the idea came to me like I'm convinced that there was a woman who'd been in that taxi before me who was a writer who got hired by a sex therapist to help him write a book about his weird phone sex therapy. Because there's no way that I could just open a cab door and come up with an idea like that. <laughs> That's that. that. That is kind of bold from the blue, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just too weird. It was really just weird. But but um, the book of lost fragrances. I read about Cleopatra's perfume factory and the book of her formulas, and I thought, wow, that would make a great novel. But between then and the novel getting published, were like you know fifteen drafts and three years. Right, and a lot of research. Tons of research, and I love doing the research. I mean, research is one of the reasons I'm a writer, because I, I get to go find out a lot more about things I'm really fascinated by under the guise of I'm working. I, get to go to, <laughs> I got to buy like 200 bottles of perfume for under the guise of I have to do this for research for my novel. <laughs> So I got really, to to Mr. Paris. Accountant, it really is, it, really, Mr. Auditor, this really was for research. Yeah, I mean, I got to go to Paris twice, and, it, I mean, doing the research for the Book of Lost Fragrances is one of the best research efforts I've ever had. 
The worst was lip service when I actually had to be a phone sex operator for a couple of weeks to learn what the world was like. Ew. Wow. It was fascinating. I shouldn't have used the word worse. I should have said the most difficult, complicated, and strange. Right. Right. And, yeah. And I I imagine it was (laughs) very enlightening. Probably probably very eye-opening for one but two yeah I, I would say that would probably be incredibly difficult especially with something that you weren't necessarily um comfortable with to start with well strangely what i didn't realize until i did it was how similar phone sex is to writing fiction because when you're a phone sex operator or therapist what you do is you kind of listen to you know kind of know what questions to ask of a man mm-hmm. to kind of figure out what his fantasy is and then you kind of spin a story based around this fantasy. Mm-hmm. And it's just like writing fiction. Yep. So it was actually shockingly easy and kind huh. of reassuring that if I ever needed to, there was another job waiting for me. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I can be a 1-900-call person. <laughs> Hopefully that's more like Plan Z and not Plan B. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's Plan Z, actually. But Yeah. <laughs> So, well, that's that's fascinating because, and you know what, you just pointed out something that um, some authors might be afraid of. Sometimes you have to go out of your comfort zone to do the research that you need to do to make your book believable. You know, like you could have written the book without having the experience, but then you, for <laughs> for your readers that may have been either the guys that call in or the women who, you know, answer yeah. the phone, they would have been able to read your book and call bullshit on you. You know, they would have been yeah. able to say this isn't authentic. Yeah, I think that when you can, you should. I mean, I write a lot of historical fiction now. Like, I couldn't go talk to Cleopatra, obviously. You know, I couldn't go back to ancient Egypt or go back to France during the time of the Revolution. So I read a lot of things that were written at the time. I try to do... To, to get immerse, to immerse myself as much as I can in the time period that I'm writing about so that it's authentic. Because I think that, um, you know, it's not going to it's not going to be completely authentic anyway, but the more authentic it can be, the easier it's going to be for the reader to slip into it and, and get taken away by the story. Mm-hmm. Yep, totally. And there's that, you know, there's that whole trust issue. You know, if you put in something that is, yeah, I mean, even though it's fiction, if you put something in that's obviously out of place, it's going to rattle in their mind and then it's going to lessen their ability to uh, believe the rest of your story. So, yeah, I think a lot of people these days, um, and I understand why, but I think a lot of authors are writing really too fast. Mm-hmm. and they're not getting their books edited and they're self-publishing them before they're really ready to be published. I don't have a problem, obviously, with self-publishing since I started my career that way, but I hired a big New York editor, and I spent a lot of time and money editing, having edit, lip service edited before I self-published it. Um, I think that you only have one shot with a reader to make a reader fall in love with you, mm-hmm. and if a reader reads your first book and it's, shoddily edited or not edited and full of mistakes and not compelling, they're not going to try you again. Although, I should say that the weirdest review I have ever had up on Amazon is from a reader who said, "Um, I've read every one of MJ Rose's books and I have disliked them all, but I dislike this one the most. (laughs) 
And I wanted to say to her, it was like my eighth book, and I wanted to say, you know, no one says you ever have to read me again. If you don't like me, don't read me anymore. It was like, are they assigning me in your school? I said, Why are you going back? There are a million books out there. Why are you reading an author who you don't like? Well, it was and very funny. I can actually, I can actually um, identify with that because I did a series of um, books that were transcripts from podcasts, and it was in uh, the affiliate marketing industry. So it was a very specific industry, and you know, Karen worked with me on some of them, and you know, mm-hmm. there are different. There were a lot of different people that were involved in the conversations, and I very clearly said you know, that these were all, you know, transcripts of conversations. And I had a woman who reviewed the first one and she said, the information was really good. I wish you would have pulled out the bullet points. And by the way, I don't like the transcript format. And <laughs> I had I had five of these, right? So that was the first one. Then she did the second one, said the same thing. Third one said the same thing. By the fourth one, she goes, well, as everybody knows, I don't like the format. And I'm like, who held a gun to your head and said you had to read them? That's so funny, isn't it? People are so strange. They really are. Oh, God. So, well, it sounds like you're a pioneer in a lot of areas, which is really cool because, number one, a woman pioneer doing things is, you know, always exceptional. And also, you know, it, it goes to show what you can accomplish when you set your mind to it and when you don't let the box contain you. Yeah, well, you know, I was really lucky. I was um, I was brought up in New York City, and I went to an all-girls school. And when you go to an all-girls school from first grade to 12th grade, no one ever says to you that you can't do something because you're a girl. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. only girls are doing everything in the school. And uh, it was very easy to believe in yourself. I mean, when I first went to, when I went to college, and it was the first time that I was really in classes with boys, I was shocked at things people would say, like how they'd call on boys for certain things. And it's like, what's going on? What world is this? Mm-hmm. You know, New York was a great place to grow up, really innovative and and full of art, and um, it really shaped me a lot. And you grew up, dur- you know, during a good time period here, you know, when um, New York was very vitalized and, like you said, full of art and creative people and... You know, that vibe is still here. You know, you, you, I don't know about other people, but when I, if I leave New York and then I come back, I feel more creative energy when I, as soon as I get off the plane. When I walk into Manhattan, you know, I live in Queens, but when I go into Manhattan, you come out of the subway and the energy just hits you. And yeah. no, it's not the humidity, it's the energy. <laughs> yeah. It's you know, you keep telling like me that, that but I don't yeah. know. <laughs> It's like there's a concentrated energy here, and for yeah. people who believe in that type of thing, you know, there really is a concentration of so much creative energy here, and there also is in Los Angeles for me, you know, but it's a different kind of energy in Los Angeles for me, um, and I don't know, maybe it goes back to your story about, you know, you go back in time and, you you know, you touch the, the cab handle and something happened. You know, me, I fly across the Sierra Nevadas, and all of a sudden I want to get my camera out and start shooting. And, you know, I'm a professional photographer, but you don't always have that feeling that, oh, my God, I have to take pictures when you're, like, still in the airplane. (laughs) Um, You know, but, um, all right, so 
Now, you, you did decide to start self-publishing. What prompted that? Just the, the, what prompted that? Oh, originally, mm-hmm. I had written I had uh, written two novels, and I'd gotten an agent with the first one, a good New York City agent, and she'd taken the two books out, first one, then the other, and she'd gotten really great rejections from all of the publishers that were very consistent, and the rejections were that I don't write traditional, um, I don't write traditional genre books. It's mm-hmm. like I hear a little bit suspense, a little bit erotic, especially at that time. Mm-hmm. A little too smart to be pure commercial, but too commercial to be pure literary. Right. And everybody kept saying to her, "We don't know how to market this book, especially lip mm. service, which is very erotic." And it was 1998, and there had not been a very erotic novel out since Erica John's Fear of Flying in the 70s. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) so it had been a long time since there had been an erotic novel. Nobody knew what to do with it. So I was the creative director of a $150 million ad agency in New York, and I'd already been been online since 1994, and I had a really strong sense of the potential marketing power of the Internet and how cheap it was. And so I said to my agent, I'm going to do a marketing experiment. I didn't call it self-publishing. That was not the intent. Right. So I'm going to take the book. I'm going to, put, I'm going to get a website. I'm going to put the book up on the website as an electronic download. There was no such thing, really, as an e-book then. Right. There were no e-book readers. There were Palm Pilots and computers. So you could read an electronic file on your computer or your Palm Pilot. Mm-hmm. So I said that I was going to put the book up as an electronic download and I was going to have a shopping cart on my website, and I would print up like 500 copies or something and make those for sale too. But then I was going to do this extensive marketing campaign for six months, and I was going to market the book the way I thought it needed to be marketed. And if I could sell a couple of hundred copies of the book fairly easily, then I would, then I would give her the results, and she could go back to the publishers, and she could say, you know that book you really liked, but you didn't know how you'd market it? Well, this is how you market it. I was a marketing expert. So that's what I was doing. I I didn't think I was self-publishing. I wasn't trying to get around anything. It was purely, I know how to market. I'm going to show you how to market this book. So I started to market the book, and it started to sell and sell and sell. And nothing like Shades of Grey because very few people were buying things on the Internet in those days, and very few people could read an e-book anyway. But I was selling the book, and the book was up at Amazon, and it was very highly ranked, and it would come up in search engines all the time when people were looking for other erotic pieces of fiction. And an editor from the Doubleday Book Club and Literary Guild, it came up in one of her searches, and she bought it and read it and contacted me. And she said, you know, I work for the Doubleday Book Club, and I I was listed as the publisher. I, I formed a little publishing company called... Lady Chatterley's Library. And, um, <laughs> nice. And so I, she called me and said, you know, you have, you've published this book and we'd like to buy it for a featured alternate selection. And I said, well, you know, it's self-published. I, I didn't put it up there to sell it. And she was like, well, we don't care if it's self-published. We love this book. So I sold her the book and I called my agent and I said, you know that? My agent, by the way, had gotten very mad at me for doing this because she said, nobody does this. They're going to say you're self-publishing self-publishing has, it's like the worst thing you can do. It means you have no talent. Nobody good self-publishes. And we actually parted ways over it because I thought she was insane because I had all these friends that were independent filmmakers and painters and sculptors and 
necessarily selling their own work. Independent filmmakers have their mm-hmm. own festival, for God's sake, Sundance. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a badge of courage to be independent as a filmmaker. So I thought my agent was quite crazy. So, um, but then when Devil Day called, I called her back, and I because I she was had been my agent, and I said, crazy thing happened. I told her what had happened, and she said, oh, my God, I'll be able to sell it in a minute. And sure enough, she did. She sold it to one of the publishers who really liked it but didn't know how to market it. She sold it in, like, two days. That's great. Well, and to clarify for, you know, like the new generation that doesn't know about self-publishing in the old generation, um, back in the 90s, self-publishing was Vanity Press. And it was, you uh, couldn't, this is the, this isn't uh, my perception, this is the perception of self-publishing back then, that if you couldn't get accepted by a traditional publisher, you went to a vanity press who you paid, instead of them paying you, you paid them to print your book, and then you were responsible for distributing it. And, um, you know, some of them had distribution deals and some of them didn't, but, um, that's why people were like of the idea that oh well you can't get published by a traditional publisher so you're publishing by yourself. Right, and now, I should say that I didn't go to a vanity press. I went right. to a printing plant. Right. That mm-hmm. was used by small publishers, and I paid a printing plant to print the books, mm-hmm. and I paid a, a cover designer to do this cover design and an editor to edit it. So vanity press got a bad name because not only did you pay them. But you paid them crazy amounts of money. You paid yep. them ten, twenty thousand dollars to print five hundred copies of your book, and they owned the rights. And it was just a ripoff scheme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nobody was doing when I did this. There was nothing set up for authors to do what I was doing, or you just like do it yourself. Do it yourself. Publishing didn't exist, and that's right. what we have now is do it yourself publishing, which mm-hmm. is very different than paying. I mean, we still have some vanity presses. I mean, Publish America, I think, still charges you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's pretty much on the, it's going out really fast because people are getting too smart. Mm-hmm. Well, right. You can do print on demand, so why do you have to pay somebody right. to print you, yeah. you know, a minimum of 50 or 100 books at five right. bucks a book? Well, and everything changed when print on demand came in. And in the beginning, there was no print on demand. It wasn't print right. on demand. Till like 2001 or two. Mm-hmm. So, and that really did drastically change everything. Yep. And, you know, being able to, um, well, and like you said, you got a book deal out of it. So you were happy and everybody was happy. And then after you were published, uh, you said a bunch of your books were published by um, Pocket Books. No, I stayed at Pocket for two books, and then I moved around a little, and okay. I've had, I've had uh, three publishers. Um, I'm back at the woman who published me at Pocket now is the head of Atria, and I'm back with her at Atria. Okay. So by the time I'm done, I will have done I've almost, you know, done five of my books with her. But, um, but yeah, and, and then along the way, I self-published a nonfiction book called Buzz Your Book uh, a couple of years ago with Douglas Clegg, who I wrote it with. Um, there were, we didn't even think about going to a traditional publisher. We wanted to do it ourselves, and it ex- the ways to do it ourselves existed, and it was um, a 100-page book. I didn't, I mean, I didn't, it was a niche market book. There was no reason to go to a publisher. Right. And I have another one coming out next probably next month called What to Do Before Your Book Launches. This will 
also a self-published ebook with um, a woman named Randy Susan Myers, who's a traditionally published novelist. And we've written a book called What to Do Before Your Book Launches that's full of advice and tips for authors. So and I plan on doing having both feet in both camps for a while. I like doing both. I like being entrepreneurial, and I like having a publisher. And that's one of the beauties of now. Like, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but back in the day, if you signed with a publishing company, they had to have first rights of refusal to anything you wanted to write. No, they still do. They have first rights of refusal. But first of all, you know, there's always this funny thing about that. It means that they get the first chance to make a bid on your book. Ah, okay. But you can turn them down. Mm-hmm. It just means you can't show the book to another publisher mm-hmm. or sell mm-hmm. it to another publisher until you give your current publisher the right to publish it. But good agents, which is why you need an agent, good agents have your my contract with my current publisher, they only have right of first refusal on a similar book to the one I'm writing. So okay. I'm writing... Right, so I'm writing like historical paranormal fiction, say. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to write a um, mystery, um, a dystopian mystery for a YA audience, they don't have. I don't have to show that to them. That's okay. a completely different book. And if I'm writing a nonfiction book, they don't see that either. They don't even, you know, they wouldn't want it. But that's not in my contract. And there's a lot of this too with self-published authors who don't think they need agents. And um, or authors who don't think they need agents and they can work with publishers directly. And if you're an author and you work with a publisher directly, you get a boilerplate contract that has a lot of things wrong with it. Yep. And you really need an agent to navigate and steer you through the muddy waters and make the deal better than the boilerplate. Mm-hmm. For instance, a lot of authors have a clause in their contract that gives them a certain percentage of their ebook. You know, um, 25% of net on the ebook. But good agents have a clause in the contract that says, as soon as the industry rate in general changes, your, your publisher will meet the new industry rate. No argument that that's going to be renegotiated. And that's something only an agent, I mean, you can try to get that. But it <laughs> tends to be only agents that really can make deals like that. So I know it's like, we're in a very weird time right now where a lot of authors are fighting with each other. Um, self-published authors are telling traditionally author, published authors that you're stupid, that you shouldn't do anything with a publisher, that publishers are the enemies. There's a lot of angst and anger going on that really is kind of um, unfortunate and not helpful to anybody. Authors shouldn't be fighting with other authors. And every book... There's a different reason to publish it one way or another, and yep. there's no right and wrong in all this. I mean, I should, there are some publishers who take advantage of authors notoriously, and, and you shouldn't be signing with them. But mm-hmm. I'm talking about in general. Right. Yeah, and um, let's talk for a minute about how you, um, you're, with all the various different ways that you've published now, how much of the marketing has fallen on your lap? Well, a lot of people blame me for the fact that you could even make that statement. <laughs> in 1999, when I did get published by Pocket Books, and I sat down in my first meeting with them and asked them how they were going to market my book, they looked at me like I was insane. But 
I was the creative director of a $150 million ad agency. Right. And so I said to them, why don't you take my advance, since I had a job, and put it into advertising? And they said, we don't know how to do that. We, we've never heard of that. What do you mean? You have to take your advance. <laughs> so I started lecturing and teaching authors about getting involved in their own marketing starting in 2000. And I taught a class called Buzz Your Book for about five years until I, the class was too intensive in terms of work for me, and I wrote the book. And I'm the one I wrote in Poets and Writers Magazine and Writers Digest and at BEA and basically everywhere starting in 1999, becoming an author advocate and telling authors they had to get involved and understand what the marketing and PR was of their book. As a result, a lot of authors started doing marketing and adding PR to what they were doing for their book. And as a result, a lot of publishers... Um, have started to rely on us to do it, but the fact is that that was going to happen anyway. I've never, I, I had two books in my career where I did nothing for them. They were the worst selling books that I ever had, and I had to start my career over from scratch after those two books because the publisher convinced me not to do anything on my own, that it was unseemly. <laughs> and it was a new publisher, and my agent said, you have to listen to them, and I did, and I had published, like, I had sold, like, 150,000 copies of the book before that in, in hardcover and trade and from the book clubs. And I went from that to selling, like, 3,000 copies of the next book without doing anything to add to it. Mm-hmm. It's very hard now. There are too many books. I mean, I don't want to say there are too many books like that. They're not good. But there are so many books being published, and there's so few ways to discover them, mm-hmm. and marketing has shriveled up because bookstores have shriveled up, and it's so hard to get attention for a book that authors have to get involved and do as much as they can because publishers have never done an equal amount for every book. Publishers pack the books they're going to market, the big titles, the lead titles, mm-hmm. and they market those. And even, I mean, what a lot of authors don't realize is giant authors, the big authors of the world are all spending their own money on extra marketing from Dean Koontz on down to Jennifer Weiner. Mm-hmm. They're, they're spending money marketing mm-hmm. their own books. I mean, they are. They're hiring PR firms. They're adding to their publishers' marketing budgets and ads. Very few authors just sit back and let the publisher go do whatever they want without being involved. That's And, and that's... I like what you said in the beginning where, you know, you're, you are responsible for authors being advocates and, and doing their own marketing, but you're right that the publishers are good at publishing. The publishers aren't good at marketing, and that change was going to happen anyway. Regardless, yeah. yeah. That, it was going to happen because they weren't, they weren't focused on it, and they don't hire and have never hired marketing experts. The people right. in the marketing departments come from other aspects of, of they got out, come out of school or they are in PR and they move over to marketing, but they don't hire MBAs from Wharton School of Business or people from advertising agencies who've run big advertising budgets to come in and figure out how to advertise the books. Right. And it, and it, you know, and over the years it's shown. I mean, some of the things that are really new about books that are really critical is that um, publishers can't publish and publish a book and market it all year long. But an author can market a book and and should all year long because a book is new to every reader who's never heard of it before. And readers don't know what's new and don't care what's new. They just want something that sounds good. 
And the book never dies anymore because of the Internet. So every author should be out there somehow doing something for their book all year long because every time you tell someone about your book, like, and I just told the two of you about my book. It's been out for five months. You've never heard of it. I just sold two books. Yep. (laughs) And I can do this for the next 10 years on just one book, and I know people that have. There's no end. You, You don't have to spend money all the time. But there is no end to letting people know about the book, and you should never stop. Publishers obviously can't afford to do that. They have to move on to the next book. But authors don't have any limitation. Yeah, and um, why don't you talk a little bit about, um, I know you have another project called Author Buzz, and I would think that is how you're teaching authors or helping authors to market their books? Yeah, Author Buzz is basically a little ad agency. We've been in business since 2005, we work with major authors from best-selling authors down to debut authors, and we work with every major publishing company in New York practically at some point during the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work with Simon Schuster, Hachette, HarperCollins, Penguin, St. Martin's, Algonquin. I mean, we're working with everybody for different promotions that we offer that they buy from us. Um, and started as a way to help authors do marketing. The publishers found us and liked us, and they hire us to do some stuff. So we have different programs and packages that authors can hire us to do, and we basically get the word out about books. And it's so I, I said 2005, about 70% of our businesses return clients, and um, w- working for me is the head of online marketing Christine Cabello, who was the head of online marketing for Ballantyne at Random House and started the Ballantyne Reader Circle, and then she left to have a baby, and she Mm -hmm. came to work for me freelance when Mackenzie was about a year old. And also Natalie White works for me, who was uh, one of the heads of advertising at Simon & Schuster, who left to have a baby and then came to work for me. It's great. I get these did like you, really. Did you start cheering for women to get pregnant so they would lose their jobs? So fabulous. They want to stay home and spend time with their babies. And I don't need them to come into an office. We do everything virtually. And they work on the plans and the marketing ideas with me for our big, for our books. And it's perfect. They get to work. I get top notch talent and everybody's happy. That, that's awesome. Um, that really is awesome. Well, we're we're about out of time, which usually I I, I don't <laughs> I I, I want to talk more. <laughs> we always run up against that edge. Yeah, we run up against the edge of the the time. Um, we really um, have enjoyed speaking with you, and I'd like to um, you know if you can in the future possibly come back and talk to us a little more, probably a little bit more in depth about um, author buzz and how that helps authors. And oh, I'd be, I'd love to do that I, whenever you want. I'd be more than happy to come back and talk about it. Uh, that would be that would be really great, and um, it's been very interesting to hear the history and how you've been involved in the history of the, you know, the self-published movement, and you know that you've embraced all different kinds of publishing, and so you can speak to that with um, people who are trying to decide, you know, which way should you go, and like you said, each book is unique, and they don't all need to go the same way. Right. No, definitely. You were great. I loved your questions, and I love your attitude. And whenever you want me to come back, I'd be more than happy to come back and talk about marketing. All right, great. Why don't you give us um, a website or two where people can find you on the Internet? Uh, really complicated. 
mjrose.com okay. and authorbuzz.com. Nice. Love it. Um, Karen, you want to tell people how they can get a hold of you? Um, the best way to find me is probably on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash Karen Garcia, and um, you can find me there. All right. Oh, I should also say that on Twitter, I'm MJ Rose. Mm-hmm. And um, on mjrose.com is my Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, newsletter, everything about me, social media-wise, that you could possibly want and don't need. <laughs> <laughs> and what's really interesting is our um, our interview before yours today was uh, with a company that, uh, with a group of people that just published a book about Pinterest for business. And we had a very enlightening conversation with them. So, Oh, that's cool. It's such a, I, we, I was doing Pinterest like two and a half years ago when it wasn't a marketing tool. It was just a fun way to scrapbook. Nice. I love Pinterest and I hate that it's become a business. But I know. That, uh, that's what all the old Pinterest people are saying. Not old, yeah. old, but, you know, the the uh, people first who found the, it yeah. first. No, I knew what you meant. The, okay. the, the first I'll be adopters. <laughs> so, um, all right. So okay, those, have a great night. Thank you. Thanks okay, so much. bye-bye.